Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Tom Lee, co-founder of Lovo.ai, a synthetic speech platform that's raised over $7 million in funding. Tom, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, Brad. Nice to meet you. Uh, thanks for inviting me to the interview. Yeah, no problem. Excited to chat with you. So before we dive in, can you share with us a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Sure. I grew up in Korea. I spent a little bit of uh, time in Canada, and I spent half my life in the States, going from the East Coast to the West Coast. I went to UC Berkeley, studied business, did IT sales and marketing. So probably as far from AI and synthetic speech and all that stuff as anyone could be. But uh, I ended up, you know, running a company doing the AI. Nice. Interesting. I'm excited to dive further into that. But before we do, a couple of questions we like to ask just to better understand, you know, what makes you tick as a founder. So is there a CEO that you've learned the most from? And if so, you know, what have you learned from that? Yeah, if it's possible, I want to choose two people. So one would be Brian Chesky, I think. A lot of people have really chose him as mm -hmm. one of their models as well. But I really look up to him for his greediness. You know, if you hear all the things about like Airbnb buying cereal boxes every night or hot gluing those boxes and all that stuff, I think that's amazing. And how they built a brand that actually doesn't just sell a product, but they actually sell the Airbnb brand. I think that's mm -hmm. amazing. And I actually look up to this Japanese CEO called Kazuo Inamori. Aside from all the work that he did, I think it's just his thoughts on leadership and making his team happy as a foremost goal and being a good human, that's something that I'm really trying to mimic as a founder myself. Very cool. I'll have to check out that second one, but I've definitely you know, been following Airbnb CEO, and he's really just such an incredible entrepreneur. You know, that's uh, the early stories that they have of like the amount of hustle yep. and the amount of perseverance they had is you know truly remarkable. And yep, it makes yep. sense. You know, they deserve everything they have now with this massive company. Yep. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a huge impact on you as a founder? And, and you know, this could be a business book or it could also be a personal book. Oh, man, um, I think I'm probably going to sound cliche, but zero to one. Um, <laughs> you know, what founder doesn't like that book, right? But I really like the point, not about the zero to one aspect, but more about the one to 100 as well, because not everyone is going to do zero to one, right? And I think the world needs people who do one to 100 or 100 to 101. So I don't feel bad about a founder being a, you know, one to hundred person. So nice. And I love Peter Thiel too. He's a uh, thing that's probably controversial and he's definitely a controversial guy, but I, uh -huh. uh, I don't agree with all of his politics. I would say I agree with yep. some of them, but I just admire anyone who's willing to stand up for what they believe in, you know, despite all of the shit he gets from people. So <laughs> you have to admire him. You at least from yep. that. Indeed. Yeah. All right, let's talk about what you're building today then. So what's the origin story behind the company and what's the high-level pitch? You know, what's the, the problem customers are paying you to solve? Right, so starting with the origin story. So my co-founder and I both went to UC Berkeley. We met there and we first hit it off at this uh, student competition called the Big Ideas Competition at Berkeley. We won third place, but we realized, you know, we have much to learn about the world and, and how the companies work. So we both went our separate ways, you know, doing our thing and then, Three years down the road, he hit me up again. He's like, Tom, like, do you want to, I have this idea. Do you want to join? And at the time I was in my late 20s, I was like, you know, before I hit my 30s, I think I want to leave the corporate world behind and, and do something crazy. So 
I jumped ship and then I joined. And um, Lobo, what we do is we're an AI synthetic speech startup. But that's who we are now. But our goal mm-hmm. is to be a content creation platform, regardless of whether it's just voice or image or even blockchain. We want to be the platform that everyone kind of looks up to and, and thinks of like Photoshop um, or Canva. And could you define what synthetic speech is exactly for the listeners? Sure. I think for simplicity's sake, imagine, you know, you have a real human voice and we take that and clone that and make it available as an option for you to turn any text that you have into that voice. So you can make that voice say anything that you want, even if that person has never actually said that before in their life. Got it. So for example, I could have my voice reading blog posts that we've written in the past. Yep. And something that you actually never read in your life. Wow. You know, I watched the documentary about Anthony Bourdain. Have you seen Uh that? Yep. Yep. I have. That must have been a big deal in the synthetic speech world. But I watched that whole thing and I was thinking like, how is he talking? I don't understand. It makes no sense to me like (laughs) how he's narrating this thing because he's obviously dead. Uh, And then I read the articles afterwards. I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. So I think that's really cool. And what does that look like on your end then in terms of the amount of content that you need to have, you know, from the actual person's voice in order to do it? This could be wrong, but what I understand from this space is like the reason they were able to do that with Anthony Bourdain is because there was so much audio footage and video footage of him that exists. So they, they were able to like take all that. And I've heard the same thing with those like Tom Cruise, you know, AI videos that are going around on social media. So can the average person do it if they don't have, you know, this big library of content? Or how much content do you need in order to do this? Yep. You know, I think you hit the nail on its head. So the more data we have, obviously, the better it is. But the AI space has seen quantum leaps, especially uh, last year and this year. And we've been in business for six years. So we've been really focused on R&D, our AI model. So we only need a person to read 50 sentences. And I believe that's something an average Joe could do. Although our goal is to bring that down to 25 or even 10 in the future. Wow, that's crazy. So just from 50 sentences, you're able to distill enough to create a voiceover that really sounds just like that person? Yep, we can capture the the tone, the character, the style, the phonemes, and, and how you even, you know, if you have an accent, we can even capture that as well. Wow, that's incredible. And I see on your website, you have 200,000 creators, which is super impressive across 41 countries and 7 million voiceovers created. So that's incredible. Can you talk us through, you know, how'd you pull that off? How'd you attract that many users and how'd you acquire that many users? Yeah, so it actually puzzles me a lot too, because when we first launched in December of 2019, the market really didn't exist. For us, we knew we had the tech, we knew that the market would eventually develop. It was a blue ocean. But the hurdle was that we had to educate a lot of our potential customers and, and the education part took a lot of toll. And, and as you can see with anything that has a the catch line AI in it, people really get skeptical about it. So upfront, we did a lot of uh, education, marketing and, and content, but towards the end, so towards the end of 2021 and, and all throughout this year, we have not done any marketing and we're continuously getting a lot of people coming in through word of mouth which signifies that there is a huge demand and there's a lot of uh, need from the market. And in terms of that user base, how is it split between individual creators and then 
SMBs, mid-market and enterprise, are you seeing adoption on the like enterprise mid-market side or is it more like small individual creators and freelancers? So we started off with most of our users being individual content creators. So podcasters, mm-hmm. YouTubers, or even just people who want to create audiobooks or audio content at home. But throughout last year and this year, we're seeing a lot more adoption from both SMBs as well as Fortune 500 companies. And, you know, these might not be like the entire 20, 30 teams that use us, but it could be like a couple of individuals in their marketing team or HR team or learning and management solution team adopting and, and using us in their in their fields. And are they mostly based in the US or where is like, is there like a specific country that has the majority of users? Yeah, so about 75%, I would say, of our customers and users come from English-speaking countries. So U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And from the, the 25% rest, about half of them come from Europe and the other from Asia and Latin America and, and other places. And, you know, from following TechCrunch and, you know, all of these uh, these tech <laughs> outlets, I see a lot of startups, you know, and a lot of buzz around this space. I don't know if they're necessarily doing you know, exactly what you're doing, but just synthetic speech as a emerging category seems to really be growing over time. So mm-hmm. what are you doing and how do you rise above the noise and, you know, capture the attention of people and convince them to use your platform? I think a lot of people worry that if we have a lot of competitors or people who are doing similar things, it's actually eating up a portion of our pie. But what we think is that the more players that we have, the bigger the pie gets. You know, they're educating their customers, we're educating our users, and they potentially overlap. And I think where we jumped ahead is that we don't really do the same thing that our competitors do, even if it's working for them. We try to find the itching spot that our users didn't know, that that we didn't know that they had. And we do this through a lot of rapid iterations of, of hypothesis, experiment analysis. And, you know, we try to build the stuff that people want, even if we don't have the tech yet, instead of building something just because we have the tech at hand. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And when it comes to market categories, is your market category synthetic speech? Or what's your view when it comes to categories since this is such a, a new field? So we try to look at us as uh, content creation and IP space instead of just uh, limiting us into the AI or, or synthetic speech. And that's because... In the future, like we don't want people to just look at us as an AI company. We want people to be able to create a lot of content, utilizing all their IPs, trade IPs on our platform. And then, you know, unknowingly, they realize, hey, like this is actually an AI company. Like, you know, when you look at a computer, when you look at a well-functioning machine, you don't think about like what things go underneath or underneath the hood. You just want the tool to work well. And that's the product that we're trying to build. That's similar to yeah, a lot of the conversations that are happening out there right now with crypto, where mm-hmm. you know if you have to say crypto or blockchain, <laughs> then you're already in trouble. You know, it should just be what's the fastest way to send a payment or fastest way to do something like that's what people actually care about. You know, they don't really give a crap about you know the technology behind how right something on. happens. They just want to yep. see it happen. Yep, that's true. And is the long-term goal then going to be to eventually really sell and move into the enterprise? Or are you going to really try to focus on just capturing all of that market from the smaller creators? That's actually a a very tough and interesting question. And I think it's probably going to reveal a lot of our plans. I think there's a way for us to move in both directions just by differentiating our product within itself. And we realize that at a certain point, 
the enterprises that use us are not necessarily very different from the individual customers that we have, because as I said before, these are individual contributors within those companies, not, not the big machines. So having said that, I think we're focused more, first of all, with getting these individual customers to try us out. And then if they like us, you know, it's going to lead to them upselling within their organizations. So I think it's kind of ties into our, our vision of product-led growth. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think it's uh, kind of going off topic a little bit, but you know, if you look at how sales worked in the past, it was more so that, you know, from CEO led or CIO led, and, you know, you have all these fancy meetings and the sales cycles go on for six, nine months. What we believe with product like growth is if you create a product that people love and it's easy to use by anyone out there, they're going to start adopting it and then it's going to spread within the organization like Wildfire. So that's what we're looking for. And I feel like PLG is another one of those topics that's you know, a buzzword in the, yep. uh, in the startup world right now. And from the conversations that I've had with people you know, trying to do PLG, they say that a lot of companies go wrong where they just think this is like a little side tactic or it's, uh-huh. you know, oh, we're going to have like a free trial um, and then right. they fail and their efforts fail. Um, and what I've heard is it has to be, you know, really at the core of the culture. It is a PLG company. Everything we do is guided by PLG, and that's what we live by. Uh, Would you say that's the case for you? And how did you instill that culture and those beliefs in your team when for a big chunk of the time that SaaS has been around, it has been that more sales-led motion? I think that's a great point because having come from a bigger company that's, you know, and I've been doing IT sales or SaaS sales there, I was more used to, you know, grabbing meetings with CIOs or CTOs and, and trying to, you know, get them drunk and, you know, do a lot of bigger deals. But mm-hmm. I think what really changed is everyone in our team, most of our team is engineers and, and some designers, but they all think from a managerial perspective. So everybody's like, you know, how do we, how do we make this more efficient? How do we make more money? Like, it doesn't matter what position or what team you're in. Everyone's thinking like a sales rep. Everyone's thinking like a managerial position. Mm-hmm. And I think that really helps us kind of focus and be laser focused on every week, every scrum, every iteration. People are just focused on really like just building a great product. Like they're not just, you know, oh, I'm an engineer. I built it. You go sell it. Everyone's trying to think like, how do we, how do we make sure that we sell this properly? Makes a lot of sense. And I have to congratulate you on your website too. It's uh recommend all listeners to go check it out. It's beautifully designed, but more importantly, it very clear what you do and the value that you can bring. And yeah, it really you know, is obvious you know, why someone would want to sign up and what the product is able to do. A lot of the websites that I visit with listeners and just in tech in general, you go on the website and you just walk away kind of scratching your head wondering, you know, what the hell do these guys actually do? <laughs> uh, your website's very, very clear and crisp and it's, uh, it's very well done. Appreciate it. I'll tell our team. <laughs> yeah, love it. No worries. Yep. No worries at all. And If we're looking at the synthetic speech space, I think there's a wider conversation that is taking place in the media around like the ethics of this, right? Mm -hmm. It was probably maybe four or five years ago where that Obama video came out where he was, you know, saying something that he wasn't actually saying and it was quite terrifying to see. So I think there's this ethical concern around this technology. How do you navigate that part of this? technology world with those ethics concerns and the rise of fake news and misinformation and all of that type of stuff? This is, I think, a question that probably all AI or or even the, I guess, the trendy tech companies all go through. And I think this question was probably asked when uh, Fire was first found or, or, you know, Wheels or Internet was first found. And mm-hmm. I think it really has to do with 
tech can be good or bad. It really depends on how the person who is wielding it uses. And I think a lot of that goes back to our social norms, the education, the infrastructure that we have. So on a technical side, like we do have some safeguards that we have in place. So we have audio watermarks that we can trace where to track if it's real audio or, or synthetic audio. There's also safeguards in our studio where if you try to create uh, derogatory, uh, discriminatory, illegal, or all that stuff, content, we flag it and then we will alert you and then we will delete your account. But I think more so on the social front, we're working with a lot of stakeholders on how do we properly educate people to not use it for those purposes. I think it really takes the entire village or mm-hmm. I guess in the entire world to really properly shape how we move forward in the synthetic speech area. Makes sense. And as you called out, that is the case with you know, all technology in the past and current technology today. And it'll be the case with future technology as well, right? Where there's good ways to use it and bad ways to use it. So I think just making sure that the good guys win is always the key. Yeah, it's like, you know, if it's something that you can talk about with your mom at a dinner table, then you know that you've made it to mainstream. And then, you know, you're gonna, your mom's gonna tell your kids like, hey, like, don't steal from others, don't hurt others. And then don't use AI synthetic content to hurt others like if we get to that level like then i think we're set (laughs) makes sense and as you brought this idea to market what would you say has been the greatest challenge that you faced and how did you overcome that challenge who i think was educating people on why they need our service to start with that was in 2019 2020 people were like i have my own voice like i have humans why do i need you but i think that trend has kind of changed over time pretty rapidly in 2020 when AI was a big thing. And I think this year when generative AI kind of became the hot new topic, a lot of people are accepting the fact that AI could play a big role in our lives. Now I think it's more so in convincing them that this, like our tool is what they want, not something else. And, you know, and thankfully people are seeing that they need our product and they're loving it. So hopefully the trend continues. And are you seeing some people still being resistant to this idea of saying maybe... I don't know, it just feels weird or it feels inauthentic to have these you know, fake voices, as maybe people could say. Like, do you see those conversations still happening at all? Or has it really transitioned and everyone understands this idea and seems to be okay with it? I would be flat out lying if I said everyone seems to be on board. <laughs> <laughs> but I think people are more acceptable now. People are like willing to talk. Before it was like, don't even talk to me about AI. And now it's like, all right, like, Give me your spiel. Let's see. Let's you know, make it. <laughs> yeah. Give me your AI pitch. They'll at least listen to it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like this last year has been huge for AI. You know, thinking through the examples like, uh, what's the name? Dolly 2. Is that what it's called? Yep. Dolly. Yep. Yep. Everyone's been going crazy over that. And then that company, Jasper AI, had that yes. you know mega round of what was it? Like 125 million series B or something like that. So it does for sure seem like AI is moving past this like hype and buzz and you know, here's how it's going to change the world phase to here's how you can actually use it like today. It is useful technology. It's no longer just the future technology. Yeah. And it's awesome because I think for the past, you know, God knows how long, like over a decade, even after AI was a hot new keyword and a lot of companies adopted it, it was still in the realm of R&D and academic research and people out there didn't really care. They didn't really need it. But with the advent of generative AI and a lot more focus on you know UI and UX and really like helping people use it more in a seamless fashion, uh, I think AI kind of got off the high chair per se. 
Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's going to really bring about the mass adoption. Probably, hopefully, I think 2024 is going to be that year where that happens. And have you seen any adoption in terms of journalists using this? I'm seeing more and more outlets like Bloomberg does it where, you know, instead of reading this long 20 minute article, you can just listen to it. But typically the voice they have is like a robot voice, which I can't listen to a robot voice for 20 (laughs) minutes. I'll lose my mind. But if it was the actual author, that would be super interesting and super compelling. So are you seeing any traction there on the media journalism side? I think media, the traditional media, at least, I think is pretty slow with adoption Mm -hmm. here. And I think they're not seeing as much value because they believe that their readership is more prone to just reading than listening, which could be true. Um, I don't have your data, but I do see them adopting, as you said, even the robotic voices as a good sign because in the past they didn't want it. Now they're adopting slowly. So even Mm -hmm. if they're falling behind the trend, they're still on board. And I think you know, with more entertainment, some more games and, and other stuff coming in, the media is going to feel the pressure to join on board with AI as well. And do you think this puts voiceover actors at risk? For example, we produce about 30 podcasts for mm-hmm. our clients, mm-hmm. and we use a company called Voices.com, where we upload the script, and then they have you know, an army of voiceover actors that submit it, and then we use that. That's not our preferred approach. We would actually way rather if our client would you know, do the <laughs> intro, but a lot of them just don't have time or their voices you know, aren't ready yet, so they just can't do it. So for the whole ecosystem of voiceover actors, does this essentially displace them? No, I could say it doesn't because in the traditional voiceover industry, how it is designed is the top 0.01% get probably like 99% of the business. But what we're doing is we're democratizing access to voices and we're democratizing the chance for them, for the other you know, 99% to really hop on this opportunity to be a part of new tech. And we're not just taking voices for free. Like we're, we're giving them fair, uh, fair value. We're also doing revenue share with certain voice actors. And we recently started a voice NFT project. So earlier this year, we did a voice NFT project in English. And, and right now we're also doing a Korean voice NFT project right now. And what we're doing is you could be a amateur voice actor or you could just be anyone who just has a good voice but never really had a formal training. If you make your voice into NFT, now your voice has value as an asset and you can sell it, you can rent it out, you can you can create secondhand content with it. So our goal is, yes, maybe we're taking off some business from the top creme de la creme voice actors, but we want to mm-hmm. bring business to the more people around. That makes a lot of sense. And last question here for you before we wrap, if we zoom out into the future, let's say three years from now, what do you want the company to look like? And what do you hope the synthetic speech space looks like by then? This is not as easy as it used to be because, you know, pre-COVID, we used to have all these questions like, oh, like, what's your three-year plan? What's your five-year plan? And then after COVID and all these like macro events happening, it's hard to tell where we're going to be in three years. But we do want to be known more as a content creation and IP platform rather than an AI synthetic speech company, because our goal is not just about voice. We want to include a lot of generative AI tech, and we want people to be able to seamlessly create content without really caring what tech lies underneath. So, you know, we want to be a household name for a service that allows anyone to bring their idea to life through us with just a text script that they have. So mm-hmm. here, like an amateur author, uh, poet, writer, bring that along and you'll be able to create a lot of content with us. That's our goal. Amazing. I love it. 
Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. But before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey as you build and potentially become a customer and a user, where's the best place for them to go? Check us out at www.lobo.ai. Follow me on LinkedIn. You can find me as Tom Lee. You know, if you add Lobo at the end, you'll probably find me easier because I think there's probably like 5,000 other Tom Lees out there. (laughs) Yeah, pretty common name. Tom, thanks so much for joining. This has been a blast and I will be sharing this with my team and you just acquired uh, a couple of users here from our end so I can see a lot of different use cases. And as we were having this conversation, my brain was going wild with thinking of ways that I could incorporate this into our company and the clients we work with. So thanks so much for taking the time, especially given it's 2 a.m. your time. I really appreciate it and wish you best of luck in executing on this vision. Appreciate having me here, Brett. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Yep. Take care.